take the horn out, put the mouthpiece in, set the horn on your lap, close your eyes and breathe slowly through your nose and count your breaths. Try to count from one to 10 without losing your place. You'd be surprised how difficult it is. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Michael Bogart. Michael Bogart is a master of the pivot. Michael's life has navigated a number of twists and turns that took him from the military to the road with Maynard Ferguson. After a nine-year stint as the lead trumpet for the legendary Tower of Power, Michael found himself on a journey back to the Navy, back to school, and back to his deeper spiritual calling. And now he's preparing for a new chapter that has him heading back to Cali. So pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. Welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and uh, we are once again going uh, across the ocean to uh, London, where I'm going to be talking with Michael Bogart. Michael, good to see you, my man. Good to see you too, Jose. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm I'm uh, I'm honored to to be part of this. Oh uh, well, I the the honor is all mine. Uh, you have led a tremendous life. I mean, you're still a young man. Um, no, no pun intended. <laughs> but, well, maybe we'll get to Never that. Never heard that one before. <laughs> Never heard it. Um, but uh, no, you know, you, you're you still have a lot of years ahead of you, my friend. And uh, you've had a, an interesting journey so far. And uh, for people who don't know about Mike, Michael is just going to share with you uh, this amazing journey. And to me, it's super, super impressive because uh, I'm a, a firm believer in the power of pivoting. And uh, he's made some tremendous pivots. And uh, so any of you who are, are watching this show and contemplating making some changes in your life, whether it's into music or out of music or whatever it is, uh, I think you're going to get some inspiration from this episode. So let's just kind of... Just just to be clear, when you talk about pivot, we're not talking about Reinhardt, right? No, I'm not, I'm not talking about... Yeah, I'm not talking about the pivot system, no. I, I, <laughs> although I am a type four, I am, I am a downstream... Uh, or upstream player. I'm an upstream player. Yeah. So I do that, that pivot. Um, and, and we will talk some gear. So before you, you tune out, ladies and gentlemen, yes, indeed, there will be a little bit of talk about gear and high notes. So, you know, don't, don't lose faith. This is a trumpet podcast, by the way. So anyway, uh, let's kind of set the stage. Uh, Michael, you, you, um, I didn't realize this. You, you went to a uh, interlocking. I did. Um, yeah, I was, I was fortunate enough uh, in my uh, in my sophomore year in high school, um, I grew up in a very small rural farming community in in Michigan. Um, and uh, I, during the summers, I was I was lucky enough to be able to attend a Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp um, because it was it was close by my my home where I grew up. But you know, the, there really wasn't a whole lot happening musically in the town that I that I grew up in. I mean, it was a it was a rural area. There were you know a population at that time of I think about two thousand four hundred, and really the only reason why music existed in the public school system at all was to support the football program. Yeah. Um, 
it's changed. It's gotten, it's gotten better now, but at the time that I was going there, there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot happening. So, you know, Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp really kind of, kind of saved me and, and gave me my introduction to, uh, to jazz. Um, and then it was through contacts with Blue Lake that I found out about the Interlochen Arts Academy. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I had a, a chance to, uh, to audition and um, I, I won the audition and I, I got a scholarship. And so I finished out my last two years of high school at, uh, at Interlochen. And that really kind of musically set the stage for, for the really my, the rest of my life uh, musically. You know, I can't, uh, I can't downplay that enough. Uh, I, I mean, I can't emphasize that enough how important it was at that phase in my, in my development as a, as a trumpet player to be able to get thrown into that kind of environment. Because I, I was pretty much self-taught. I would have lessons during the summer at Blue Lake, but, uh, you know, I didn't have anybody I was studying with. So, you know, a lot of what I was doing was self-taught and, and it wasn't until I got to interlock and that I was really able to sit down and, and start developing a, like a normal daily trumpet routine and, and things of that nature and kind of decide what kind of direction I wanted to go into musically. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's been some tremendous talent that's come out of interlock and, and, uh, were, were there any, uh, cats that you were with there that you've maintained a relationship over the years with? Yeah. Um, I've stayed in touch. We, at the time that I was there, we had a really, really solid, um, trumpet studio. Um, Walter White, uh, had just graduated like a year ahead of me. So his presence was still very much, uh, the presence of Walter. Yes. Permeates all. Um, and I was classmates with an amazing trumpet player named Jason Carter, who's, who's been, uh, he's been with Yanni for many, many years, but he plays incredible jazz. He, he plays great classical music and plays, plays great lead too. I mean, he's, Jason is just like one of those, one of those all around cats. Um, and, uh, and then there were, there were also, we had some really great classical trumpet players there. And that, that's actually that was what my main focus was on when I got there. And, and when I graduated from Interlock and I, I wanted to be an orchestral trumpet player. So um, I was my senior year, I was finally able to make it into the orchestra and I played co-principal to um, a trumpet player whose name is James Stevenson, who's now a very well-known brass composer. And, uh, and he's written some amazing brass music. Um, he wrote the piece that the Chicago Symphony Orchestra um, played as a, as a tribute when, when the great Adolf Hersef, when Bud Hersef passed away a number of years ago, they commissioned Jim to compose the piece that wow. they, that they performed in Bud's memory. Cause you know, Bud was, was obviously a huge influence on, on all us trumpet players, all brass players that, you know, were growing up in the 1970s and 1980s and even earlier. Right. And even still today. You know? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, they're, they're the Chicago sound, man, there's nothing like that. Um, but, you know, that, that was interesting to me because, um, you know, my my knowledge of you, my experience of you uh, was definitely more in the jazz and uh, commercial music uh, standings. And I didn't realize that, you know, you were you were the legit master there for for a number of oh, years. Hardly a legit master. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I was I was I was lucky enough to to get accepted into a couple of different schools. I did get, I auditioned for Eastman. I did not get accepted. I wasn't good enough uh, to get into Eastman. I did get an accept, accepted into the New England Conservatory, um, and I also got accepted into the University of Miami. And at that time, the trumpet professor there was was Gilbert Johnson, who has since passed away. But Gilbert was the principal trumpet of the Philadelphia Symphony uh, for all those years when Eugene Normandy was a conductor and made some Gil made some really landmark recordings with the Philly. Um, 
So I was, I was kind of torn. In the end, what decided it for me was what eventually decided my career for me was um, in the, I, it must have been like the last semester of Interlock. And, and I mean, I was like all gun ho to just, you know, throw myself into the classical world. And then Maynard Ferguson came to the Interlock and Arts Academy and performed. And I remember sitting there, I was sitting next to Jason Carter in, in, in the, in the, uh, in the, at the gig in the performance right. and just being absolutely just like, blown away by this wall of sound and and walking away from that going hmm maybe that's what i want to do <laughs> so the seed had already been planted by that point right. um, so i ended up choosing the university of miami because miami had a really really strong jazz department and i i kind of i kind of thought well um you know if 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 the classical thing and for whatever reason i you know i wanted to go to some place that had not that new england conservatory didn't have a jazz program they had a big band um but the university of miami of course uh i mean their reputation yep. pursued itself for their jazz program so i ended up going to the university of miami oh that's that's really interesting yeah it's funny because like for me when i was going when i graduated from high school um my original major wasn't music it was actually biochemistry and um I gotten accepted at a number of universities, and I was down between two. Uh, one was Harvard, and the other was Ohio State. And I was living in Ohio at the time, and it was, you know, do I go to Harvard uh, or do I go to Ohio State? And wow. my call, man. my decision was to go to Ohio State, and it was for two reasons. One, uh, I could live with my sister and not have to pay room and board. So even though I did, I, I had a free ride for that first year. It was, it was, you know, I, I was solid for that, but you know, it was like, well, I, you know, I really haven't been away from my family that much. So, you know, I would feel much more comfortable transitioning that first year of school, you know, being with my family. Uh, but then the second thing was that, you know, Ohio State had a, had a great music program. So it was the same thing. It's like, you know, I'm, pl- I'm spending a lot of time playing and gigging and things like that. And I really would like to play music as well as do my studies. So I want to be someplace that I have that opportunity. And then, of course, after a year, I switched to music. So, you know, it worked out in, in the end. But it's funny how sometimes we uh, and I think this is going to be the theme of what we, that we talk about today is, you know, you, you start out with an idea in mind, but there, there's kind of a, a seed that's planted in you and you, you come to this, this point of making a decision. And sometimes it's that seed, that thing that, that you didn't think was that important at the moment. It pops up and goes, no, you know, you need to keep the door open for this because this is eventually going to be uh, a very crucial part of your life. So, uh, you know, we, we, we've, we've, gotten you down to Miami and I, I know you end up in the Navy after that. Um, were you, uh, were, you were stationed in, in uh, California? Not at first. Um, I, I joined the Navy in, in 1988. I didn't finish up at the University of Miami, um, which is also part of my story, part of my journey. Um, I got in, I, I, uh, I was partying too much and uh, I ended up uh, losing my scholarship and you put on academic probation and then just finally getting to the point um, where I, I just couldn't see myself uh, being able to finish. Um, so I, I went back to uh, back home with my tail between my legs. And, uh, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of options at that point. Um, and we found out that, um, that the military had bands that you could audition and play in. 
And the closest band geographically to where we where we were at was the uh, the Navy band at Great Lakes. Um, ironically enough, where I ended up finishing my career. Um, and so I uh, I auditioned for the Navy music program. That was in 1988. Um, after graduating Musicians A School, uh, which was in Little Creek, Virginia, um, which is the, everybody goes to that after boot camp. Uh, the first band I went to was actually in Guam, and we don't have that band anymore. Unfortunately, it was it was lost to uh, lost to cuts, mm -hmm. um, but that was a uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I was in Guam for I think about four years, and then um, and then I was uh, transferred to Yokosuka, Japan, which is uh, I I think about 40 kilometers south of Yokohama, something like that. And so I was in, I was in Japan for five years and then I ended up in San Diego. And uh, by that point, um, I did one year with the Navy band. Uh, at that time it was called the Navy band San Diego. Now it's called Navy band Southwest, I think. But um, I did one year there and I hit the 10 year mark. And I, I kind of had to make a, make a decision at that point if I wanted to stay in and finish or um, if I if I wanted to get out, and again we talk about these these crossroads and and you know trying to be open to possibilities and suggestions and trying to listen to our inner inner voice and inner guide and and um, when when I was in Japan um, I had a chance to uh, to hook up with with the trumpet player who you've had on your on your show Eric Miyashiro who's a very good friend of mine. Um, in fact, he he gave me this for recording uh, his first album. Oh, nice! And uh, Eric and I had known each other from way back when 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 he was still on Buddy's band. That was when we first met. Um, but fast forward, he was he had been living in Japan for a number of years. Was already like the the number one you know studio trumpet player, and uh, and we had just starting to put together his first big band. And I got there and I, I phoned him up and I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I'm living in Japan. And so he started calling me for, uh, for, for gigs, for studio work and, and also to play lead in his, in his big band. Um, so it was from that experience that led to when I, when I you know, I, I, I stayed in Japan about as long as you can possibly stay because I didn't want to leave. And plus, I had also, you know, at that point I was married and we, we had just had a, had a child. She was a couple of years old. Um, and uh, I kind of wanted to, to be stable and stay in one place, but the Navy, you know, they got to move me around. So I stayed there as long as I could. And finally, the Navy said, you got to you got to head back to the United States. Um, but Eric made, you know, some some calls on my behalf. And, and he had been on Buddy Rich's band with a, a great trombone player named Tom Garling. Right. And Tom was the musical director on Maynard Ferguson's band. So he, he, you know, contacted Tom and said, Hey, there's this great trumpet player who's going to be in San Diego. You know, if you guys are coming through town and you need a sub or whatever, please don't, don't hesitate to call him. And that's exactly what happened. Um, there were the Maynard's band was playing in Fallbrook, um, North of uh, San Diego and they needed a sub and uh, they called me and I, I subbed and, and it was from getting to sub with them a couple of times uh, as, as Carl Fisher's replacement that ended up, I was offered the, uh, the gig full time. And so at that point, plus not to get ahead of myself, I'd also had an opportunity to audition for Power of Power, um, which I, I did not get the gig at that time, um, but I came in second. So based on based on you know the offer from Maynard Ferguson's band, based on the, the 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 fact that I was able to come in second in the Tower of Power audition, I decided at that point I had reached the end of my enlistment. I was at the 10-year point and I figured, you know what, if I'm gonna take the jump and try to make it in the civilian music world, um, I need to do it now. 
or I'm never going to do it. And so I decided not to re-enlist, and I got out of the Navy and, and joined Maynard Ferguson's band. Yeah. How long were you with Maynard? Um, a year and a half. So, like, I joined in, sorry, just over a year. I joined in 1980, or sorry, 1998. Uh, I couldn't tell you what month. <laughs> um, and uh, I, let's see, there were, there were, I left the band after a little over a year, and then there were a couple of months where I was just kind of freelancing in, in San Diego. And then Tower of Power called me. The guy who'd won the audition, um, my predecessor, Jesse McGuire, had been on the band for a, about a year and some change. And Jesse decided he wanted to move on and, and do some other things. Um, so they kept me on their Rolodex. And, and uh, the, the main, you know, one of the, re one of the factors, one of the reasons why I didn't get the job in the first place was because my resume was literally one line. It was, you know, 10 years with the United States Navy band. Right. And Jesse's, Jesse's resume was like four tops temptations, you know, all these great national acts. Right. So, um, you know, after, after Jesse decided to, uh, to leave, they called me up and actually it was Doc Kupka who called me and it was, you know, they were wondering what, what I'd been doing for the last year. And I said, well, actually I've been touring with Maynard Ferguson's band for the last year. And they said, perfect. Do you want the job? And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, was, uh, was Adolfo, Adolfo was on the, on the road with you with Maynard's band, correct? He was. Yeah. Adolfo was playing. It was funny because our, our roles were reversed. Right. Adolfo, he was playing the lead book on Maynard's band and I came in and I was playing the, uh, the so-called jazz book, the second book, which is really more, I mean, I, I think I had like one solo a night or two solos maybe. Um, and then the big thing for the second book was, during the hit medley, you had to play all of Maynard's parts. So like MacArthur Park and, you know, the, all that other stuff. So, right. you know, you had to be a jazz player, but it was probably more important that that you could, you know, do a good Maynard impression, which at that time I, I could still do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and so, yeah, Adolfo and I, we were on the band together for a year. And then um, after I had been on Tower of Power for six months, um, the, the other trumpet player on Tower Power, Bill Churchville, who had been on the band at that point, I think he'd been on the band for about seven years, Bill decided to, uh, to leave the road and focus on his studio career in Los Angeles, which is, has been going great. Um, and uh, so they asked me for a recommendation. I said, yeah, there's this trumpet player on Maynard Ferguson's band who he and I like from day one just gelled and played really well together. And, and he'd be a great addition. He's a great hang, a great human being. And uh, uh, I recommended Adolfo, and and um, they hired him based on my recommendation, which was really cool. So we were reunited and and stayed we were together. Obviously, he's still on the band, so we were together the whole time I was on Tower of Power. Yeah, that's great. Now let, let's uh, let's hang with the the Maynard thing for a bit. Um, yeah, I've been fortunate. That, I mean, Maynard was definitely one of the, the one of the first trumpet players that I heard, I, I really the first player that I heard that made me completely change my concept of what trumpet playing could be. And, uh, you know, the, the sound, the, the presence, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but then after years of following him and, you know, I've gotten to be good friends with a lot of people that have played on that band. The thing that, that has impressed me more than, than his ability to play the trumpet was uh, Maynard is the human being. And, uh, you know, everyone from, from Walter, uh, Kenny Robinson, Wayne Bergeron, Roger Ingram, you know, Adolfo, all, you know, everybody I've talked to that's been in that band, um, they, they say how 
there have been moments in that band where uh, the that deep spiritual nature of Maynard has uh, helped them to get through problems that they had uh, either on the stage or off stage and uh, have a, a better concept of, of how life really worked. I mean, do you have any moments that you can look at and say, yeah, you know, there, there was a, a definite uh, influence more than just the, the trumpet in terms of, of how Maynard affected your life? Absolutely. Um, first of all, just his energy. You know, he, he had this amazing positive energy that I'm sure everybody who you've talked to before who's been on the band, like Wayne and Roger would, and Adolfo would, would, you know, attest to, you know, we could pull the longest, like a 17 hour bus ride right into a hit. And Maynard would be the first guy, you know, jumping off the bus going, come on guys, let's go play. You know, he was just, he was just so enthusiastic and so full of energy, positive, positive energy all the time. I never saw him get quiet. I never saw him get dark. I certainly never saw him get angry. Um, and, uh, you know, nothing but positive energy. The, the other thing, the other big takeaway, and I was just thinking about this while you were, while you were talking, um, which is a really bad habit, but <laughs> I was trying to think, okay, what's, what's he going to ask? Yeah. Um, the, I think it was the first night after I got hired full time. Um, Maynard is the only time that he, that he gave any like direct advice. Um, but he, he came up to me and it was, it was like uh, right before the hit and, and he, you know, welcomed me to the band and, and, you know, was looking forward to having me. Um, and he said, I only have one piece of advice that I give every new musician who joins my band. Um, well, two pieces of advice, sorry. He said, um, don't keep score on the rest of your bandmates. Don't keep score on yourself. And, you know, obviously he was talking about keeping musical score, right. you know, oh, you know, so-and-so missed a note tonight, you know, clocking that one in my memory bank. Yeah, yeah. Or, or the worst and most common uh, enemy, you know, especially for trumpet player for me anyways, is, is keeping score on myself, you know, oh shoot, you know, I really, I really messed that like up, you know, something like that. Or, or, you know, I start more lately because I've, I've been more focusing on improvisation. You know, I start a solo and I'm like, uh, I don't know where I'm going with this idea. <laughs> yeah, right, you know? right. okay, back to minor pentatonics, the Freddie Hubbard lick number one, da, 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 you know, and, and it's then afterwards, it's like ruminating about all the things that went wrong, you know, um, but that advice, don't keep score on others, don't keep score on yourself has so many applications across the board for just life in general, you know, um, and really it kind of boils down to, I know he was really deep into meditation. I wish I'd had a chance to, because I, I didn't know anything about meditation, wasn't interested in it at the time that I was on the band. I've, I've since it's become part of my spiritual journey. Um, I wish I'd had an opportunity to talk to him and ask him about it. But it was obvious that, that a comment like that is coming from a place of be in the moment now. You know, don't, don't be spending all your mental energy thinking about something that happened in the past, even if it was just a few minutes ago. And certainly don't expend any mental, mental energy or start writing fiction about what could or could not happen in the future right. because it hasn't happened yet. Be as present as you possibly can in the moment. Um, and he just, without even talking about it, just from his presence, that's how he lived. That's how he lived his life. Yeah. And you know, that is the biggest influence. You know, it, it's, there's so many people that, that are really good at talking the talk. 
but uh, you know, it's the people that live that, and you know, you, you don't have to necessarily preach it. But you're, you know, that you know, I don't want to beat up all these uh, metaphors and stuff. But uh, you know, actions do speak louder than words. And and you look at someone like, like Maynard, and and certainly, uh, he was not a perfect trumpet player. Uh, just as I'm sure, yeah, he, he he wasn't a perfect person because none of us are perfect. Uh, we we reach we we strive towards being our best version of ourselves, but that's how you get to be the best ber- version of yourself. Is you 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 push your boundaries, and pushing your boundaries means you make mistakes. And when you make a mistake, it's okay. That's over. Let's move on to the next one. And uh, he he exuded that. And you're talking about that positive energy. It's like, you know, he could he could really crash and burn on something, but then the next minute he's amazing you again. And it's not allowing those things to get into your head. You see that in the sports world. Uh, as much as I, I, I dislike him because he played for Michigan, uh, Tom Brady, you know, uh, being a GOAT, you know, that's what it means, you know, that, that even when things are not going your way you still find a way to make things work and it's by just keeping keeping present and um you know as a as a player uh yourself uh you know you've been in these high profile situations how do you manage that i mean how do you how do you keep your head in the game knowing that uh you know there that it's easy to keep score for yourself and it's easy for other people to be keeping score on you how do you keep your your head straight and keep yourself in the game I think, I think for me, it's really tied into this, um, you know, this spiritual journey that I've been on and, and just like I said before, just trying to stay as much as possible as in, in the moment. And when I, you know, if, and when I, when I do make a mistake, trying not to let it affect from, okay, it's, it's gone, it's in the past, you know, or, and, and trying not to think ahead to, whatever. Oh my gosh, I have to play the intro to you're still a young man. And I'm only 40 minutes into the set and my chops already feel like, you know, trying not to let my head go there. And that's not something that comes naturally for me. You know, my natural default is, is to do one or the other is to either focus all my mental energy on a mistake I just made or worry too much about something that's going to happen in the future. It's taken a lot of work and a lot of effort. Um, that is definitely spiritually based to be able to stay as focused on the moment as I, as I possibly can and stay as grounded in right now as I possibly can. Um, I mean, that's, that's really, you know, and it's, it's been a journey, you know, and, and for some days I'm better at it than other days, you yeah. know, without a doubt. Um, and, uh, but overall, I'd say for the last 20 years, um, that's, that's probably paid, played, the biggest role in, in like what you said, being able to handle um, some, some fairly high profile situations, musical situations. Yeah. So it, it, obviously that is an important thing. Uh, but you know, if, if a, a young player were to come up to you and say, you know, what's something that I could do? What's a practical uh, approach that I could take? What's an exercise I could do? What's a, you know, a, a whatever. Uh, what's a way that, that I could start to develop that skill? What would you suggest them to do? I would suggest take the horn out, put the mouthpiece in, set the horn on your lap, close your eyes and breathe slowly through your nose 
and count your breaths. Try to count from one to 10 without losing your place. You'd be surprised how difficult it is. And I know I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to the, this hypothetical beginning trumpet player, you know, or student, or, you know, even like a, an experienced trumpet player who may have never meditated. Um, and just count your breaths from one to 10. And when you get to 10, start over again and start to try to feel what the sensation of the breath feels like coming into your nose and try to try to put as much of your, and if you feel your mind wandering to Clark study number two, -da 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 -da, you know, try to gently bring it back and just realize, okay, this is, this is, it's Clark study number two. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to bring it back to the feeling of my breath. I'm going to bring it back to, oh, I'm on the third breath now. Now I'm on the fourth breath. And, and just do that for five minutes, just five minutes before you put the horn to your face. And um, you'd be amazed at what a difference uh, doing that consistently. And that's really the key in, in any meditation, meditation practice. And I don't need to tell you this. That's, you know, consistency. It's better to do five minutes consistently on a daily basis than it is to do you know, weekend warrior, I'm going to go do a, a, a three-day Vipassana retreat yeah. <laughs> on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then I'm going to come back and be all spiritual for the next six months. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, for me anyways, it doesn't work that way, you know. Right. Um, I, I have to, it's better for me to try to do a little bit every single day. Um, that's what I would recommend. Yeah. yeah and, that... and by, by getting, by doing that practice, you're, you're training your mind to not necessarily, you know, the extraneous thoughts, are going to be there. They're going to come, but latching onto them and holding onto them and thinking that, that, that this thought is so important. I have to spend as much mental energy as possible. Uh, you know, it, it's, it takes training to be able to just say, okay, Clark study number two, not thinking about it because I'm breathing right now. And that's what I'm doing right now. I'm just breathing. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you pick the horn up, you realize, Oh, wow. It's like there's a level of concentration and like I'm hearing stuff in my sound that I didn't hear before or wow I'm noticing my my third finger is really really slow <laughs> you know maybe I should do something about that yeah well you know I I did a um a couple of uh, master classes on uh, mindfulness for musicians uh over the pandemic and cool. that was one of the things that that I talked to the kids about was you know, everybody's got some sort of warm-up routine. And, you know, I asked the question, you know, how many of you have a warm-up ritual that you go through? And, you know, everybody's, you know, okay, well, what do you do? Well, I play long tones or I play the lead pipe or I do free buzzing. I do, and it's like, okay, great. So these are all physical warm-ups. How many of you have a mental warm-up that you go through before you play? And it was like crickets. You know, and, and, but, but that's the thing is that, that getting your mind and your heart right, especially in terms of, I mean, all music, but I think in, especially in jazz, you have to get, have your head and your heart right because your, your head is, is, is what's kind of driving the mechanism, but your heart, that is what, that's where the music comes from. You know, the, the mind is just the allowing you to do the mechanics. The heart is where that comes from. So if you can't get your head and your heart in sync, then your music is never going to be what it could be. You know, so, you know, spending another 
six years working on, on out of Clark's and Arbonne's, yeah, it's going to give you the technical facility, but it's never going to clear your mind, get your mind out of the way of, of blocking what's in your heart from coming out. And, um, yeah, I, I want to come back to the T.O.P. thing in a bit because, you know, I, one of my, my favorite bands and I loved, loved you as a lead player in that band. But I do want to, since we're kind of on that tip right now, I do want to talk about some of these spiritual concepts because um, I think that uh, musicians, because we have to tap into that deeper nature of ourselves, the, the, uh, the thing that's greater than ourselves, um, I think that, that this is such a crucial part of uh, taking the art to the to the next level, to the higher level. So, uh, you know, would you mind sharing a little bit about your your spiritual journey and and how how that kind of came about, and and the, the things that that you have been able to implement in your life uh, as as a result of being open to this this new stage of your being. Sure, absolutely. Um... You know, and, and some of these things are things that I've never really had an opportunity or a platform to to really share about, um, just simply because I've never really been asked in, in this kind of a forum. Um, so I appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about, you know, my, my journey and, and some of this stuff. Um, when I was, uh, when I was very young, um, a woman who was, uh, was drunk, uh, she ran me over with a car. And, um, and she, she was, you know, she dragged me 70 feet underneath her car before her delayed reaction time registered that she'd hit, wow. hit, uh, hit somebody, hit a child. Um, and, uh, I, I probably should have died from, from the impact, um, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't. And actually I, I just had some minor bruising and I was, I was treated and released, I think after something like 48 hours. But shortly after that experience, um, I started spending a lot of time like out in the woods. Like I said, I grew up in a very rural area, uh, and it, it's it's beautiful. There's there's you know lots of woods, and it's you know a quarter of a mile from Lake Michigan, and um, there were uh, you know so I I started spending a lot of time out in the woods, and I started feeling this sense of safety and, and protection um, out in the woods that. I didn't feel in school, um, you know, I definitely didn't feel like I belonged in school, not in that public school. And, and um, they found out I was, I was Jewish or, you know, half Jewish. And, and you know, I, I came to school one day and there was a swastika on, on my locker from, you know, permanent marker and I had a death threat, you know, so yeah. school wasn't a safe place. Um, never really talked about this before, but home wasn't really a safe place either. There was, the, I grew up in an alcoholic home. There was a lot of chaos, a lot of trauma, um, neglect, things of that nature. So home didn't necessarily feel safe a lot of the time either. Um, but the woods felt safe and I felt connected to something and I, I couldn't really put my, put it into words and I couldn't put a finger on it. And then, you know, shortly after that, just like within a few years, I discovered music. Um, and music gave me that same sort of sense of connection. Mm -hmm. um, but then a little further down the line, starting in college, I discovered that substances could also give me that sense of connection. And, uh, and it did it really fast. Yeah. And it did it really efficiently. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, that, that, that balance, that juggling act between, 
you know, getting, trying to get that from music and trying to get that from, from spiritual things and healthy things, um, you know, gradually the substances won out, which, which happens with, in a lot of cases, unfortunately. Um, eventually I, uh, I got help and, and uh, I, I came into recovery in, in 2007. Um, and once I, as we say in recovery, once we put the plug in the jug, once, once I, I, I stopped uh, the substances, I was still left with this sense of needing to connect, needing to connect with something. And, um, and I, I, you know, it was stat, I needed it quick and, and music alone wasn't, wasn't going to be able to do it. It wasn't going to be able to keep me sober and, and keep me clean. And um, so, you know, I, I, uh, I, I had this spiritual history um, from my father's side. My father was Jewish. He was uh, from a, um, originally a, a observant community, a Litvak community, a Lit, uh, um, Lithuanian community in Chicago. Um, beginning of the last century, there were a lot of Lithuanian Jews that relocated. Most of them relocated into the United States, into the Chicago area. Um, so my dad kind of came out of that um, environment. He had left um, the community and left the religion. He was no longer, you know, he was culturally, he was a bagel Jew, you know, he was a deli Jew, but, um, you know, he, he definitely didn't have, he wasn't, uh, um, he wasn't observant in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother wasn't uh, Jewish. So uh, when it, when I was kind of like spiritually shopping, I guess you could say after, um, you know, after I, after I got sober, um, I'd already started dipping my feet into trying to learn a little bit about Judaism. And, uh, you know, the, the more I dipped my, my feet into it, the more I dipped my toes into it, the more it seemed to resonate with me, you know, and it made sense to me. And it seemed to resonate with me on the same kind of level that that little, you know, eight-year-old boy running around barefoot in the woods was, was resonating with me in a way that nothing else seemed to resonate with me. Um, so to kind of you know, try to tidy things up a little bit and, 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 you know, wrap it up and put a bow on it. Um, in 2011, I realized that Jewish observance was becoming very important to me um, because of certain, um, and, and a specific type of Judaism was becoming important to me. And it was uh, Torah observant, kind of from a Hasidic uh, mystical sort of, you know, standpoint but you know Torah observance was was starting to become much more important to me and I couldn't participate in a lot of the 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 certain prayers and things because I was I was half Jewish but on the wrong side Um, Judaism is passed on maternally not paternally Um, so in 2011 I had a a, a proper kosher orthodox conversion Uh, gyor is what we the Hebrew word for it Um, I became a a gyor and and uh, it's, it's been a gradual kind of uh, taking on of, of, you know, some of the, some of the rules and laws and things, some of the, what we call halacha, the, 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 the Jewish observance that, that, and kind, you know, it, and, and there's been periods in my life where I've been more observant, periods where I've kind of become less observant, um, but the older I get, um, and certainly I would have to say that the, this pandemic for the last year has definitely kind of created an opportunity for me to explore this even closer and even more so. And, and as I get older, it becomes more and more apparent to me that this is my life's path. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is my spiritual journey. And, um, 
it becomes more and more uh, home for me, um, more than anything else. And, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely been a part of a huge part of my sobriety. Um, like I said, you know, you, you can, you can, you know, if you, if you got a drunken horse thief and, and you get him sober, you still got a horse thief, you know, that, that, that's kind of the thinking, you know, you, you, you take the alcohol away from, from the addict and they still have to have something they, and, and for a lot of us, the only thing that ends up working is, is, is a spiritual solution right. because ultimately my problem wasn't the drugs and the alcohol. That was my solution. Right. My problem was, my problem was sobriety was myself was me. That was my problem. Um, you take the drugs and the alcohol away. I'm still left with me. Right. So I have to have something that's going to connect me, ground me spiritually. Um, and that's the beautiful thing about the 12 step program is it's a huge wide tent for just about any kind of spiritual path you want to choose. And you can even choose, you know, you can get on it and decide one path isn't working or whatever. You can switch paths or whatever. But as long as you have a spiritual solution, as long as you find some kind of spiritual solution, still to this day, 12-step recovery has the best track record of keeping people like me clean and sober. And um, I'm you know, grateful beyond words for uh, for having had that in my life. Wow. That's, that's powerful stuff. And yeah, I know that that's, well, it's societally, it's a problem. I mean, it's not just within the music industry, but but there there definitely seems to be a strong correlation between people that are of an artistic bent and substance abuse. And I have my own theories about that, um, one of which is that, you know, like I was saying earlier about, you know, you're trying to get your head out of the way so that what's in your heart can come out. And I think a lot of times that's what, creates uh this need or this dependency on the rapid solution which is you know well i can't play well unless i have you know a couple of you know, a couple of drinks and you get a little buzz on or you need to smoke a joint or i need to or, you know, yeah. i need i need to you know do an eight ball or whatever it is you know it, it just begins it's like well that's the only way that i can function that's the only way i can get the my mind to quiet so that i can do uh my art and uh then I, I see that that there's there's that big correlation between people that go down that path and they either self destruct on that path, which we you know obviously seen a lot, or they realize that that was the ends to a mean. It wasn't that that they needed that, but there was something else that that, that was missing in their life, and they find that through their spirituality. We were talking like earlier about Coltrane, and I think Coltrane is kind of that that classic example of. You know, hey, I was going down this path, and I'm I'm looking for something to fill a hole in my life, and and I wasn't really filling the hole. I was just numbing myself from the pain that that hole was causing, and it's through my spiritual pursuits that I'm actually able to fill that hole. So, uh, yeah, that that's really powerful stuff, and and I, I hope that if you know if someone is listening out there that that is struggling with uh, any type of addiction, uh, certainly listen to what Mike has to say and. Uh, if you you know somebody who uh, is in a twelve step program, talk to them. You know, talk to somebody who you know, find a counselor. Uh, there's there's no shame in having the problem. Uh, the the shame is not from from having the problem. The the shame it should actually come from not just taking the steps to you know to do something about it. You know, do, you you've got or, the power to do it. Or or worse than shame. You know, jails, institutions, or death. You know, that that's ends up being the, uh, the the last house for a lot of people like us. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So. You know, and, and you talked about the, you know, why it seems like so many artists and so many, you know, musicians or whatever seem to have, we seem to be hardwired for this. And, and, you know, I, I, I agree with your, I agree with your theory. And I would also, you know, offer up that there's, there's, um, so there's a there's a rabbi who uh, uh, he's an Orthodox Hasidic rabbi who um, I, I follow quite quite a bit, who part of his life's work is to help addicts and alcoholics. And he he published a book a number of years ago, which was was huge for me. It's called God of Our Understanding. Um, his name is Rabbi Chase Talb, and he's got a lot of YouTube you know videos where he's talking about addiction and recovery. And he puts it best, I think. He, he kind of, in terms of explaining why it seems like people like us seem to, to have a propensity for this, um, he coined a phrase in his book he calls a spiritual canary. And what it is, if you're, if you're familiar with the, the canary in the coal mine, right. you know, back in the day, they would, open up a, they would open up a new mine shaft. They would take a canary down with them. And, you know, the canary, tweet, 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 you know, everything's good. And then, you know, a few minutes later, oh, look, the canary's taking a nap in the bottom of the cage. No, that means there's toxic gas. Everybody out. You know, the canary is not a toxicologist. The, and, uh, you know, I'm completely, totally, you know, stealing all of Rabbi Taub's licks okay. right now. Okay. The canary is not a toxicologist. The canary is just more sensitive to this kind of, you know, negative stimuli the, the in this case, toxic gas for whatever reason. So all human beings, all human beings have this, this desire, this need to want to connect. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why all the isolation from the pandemic over the last year has been so devastating because, you know, all human beings have this need to connect to something, either another human being or a power greater than, than themselves, you know? But for whatever reason, there's some people who are even more sensitive to that disconnection. Um, and, uh, you know, one time Rabbi Taub was, was giving a, a, a talk to some educators and some parents, I think, and uh, it was about a third grade class and they, they asked him if he could look at a third grade class and predict who the possible alcoholics or addicts would end up being, okay? And he said, no, I can't, nobody can predict that. But I can tell you this, it's probably not the person who you think. It's probably not the kid who's, who's being really disruptive, who's being angry all the time and hitting other kids. It's probably the kid in the back who's really quiet, who's writing poetry or drawing pictures. That's probably the kid who might end up as an addict or alcoholic, you know? So he calls people like, like me, people like us, spiritual canaries. We're just, we're maybe a little bit more sensitive to um, that feeling of disconnect. And we have to have something that connects us, yeah. whether it's music, whether it's drugs or alcohol, whether it's gambling, you know, process behavior, whatever. We have to have something um, or, you know, we, we have to find some kind of spiritual program, hopefully. So, and, and, you know, I think a lot of artists and musicians and people who are creative have that, that, that pre-wiring, you know, that pre-wiring that, that, that makes us sensitive to, that enables us to be able to create art, but it also gives us this, uh, this, this incredible, um, Rabbi talk, you know, talks about it, you know, it's existential angst, existence hurts. You know, being here and being separate from the, the everything, from the one um, hurts. 
And we have to find something that's going to numb that, that's going to, you know, um, take that away. And, uh, you know, um, a lot of us end up in the arts as a creative way of trying to express that. Yeah. Wow. That's really deep. I, I like that. I like that. I have to look into that a lot more. So, um, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're gonna light. We're gonna lighten it up just a little bit, folks. So uh, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry. But we'll come back to this in a minute. So, <laughs> um, but I, I'll, I just, want, I want, I'll just preemptively say, an Eric Miyashiro number two and an Eric Miyashiro number one stock Yamaha mouthpiece. And right now, uh, an EM. Uh, what is it? Eighty three forty EM trumpet. All right, all right. You're, you're jumping the gun. We're going to get to that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe that's how we were going to. Yeah, we're, we're right now. We're going. So uh, I want to. I want to uh, flip back. Uh, we're, we were kind of just at that stage where you were with uh, Top, and uh, you know, a, a great run with that band. Uh, you guys uh, were. Yeah, I mean, the band is still still bringing it. Uh, but that was that was a really phenomenal band. Like you said, you and Adolfo. Um, you, you played like one person. I, I, I just, I was always so impressed in, in how you guys worked together and the sound that you got. But, um, I remember having a conversation with Adolfo about, uh, you know, he was talking about the, the, the transition from coming from a, you know, the, the North Texas, uh, upbringing, you know, playing with Maynard and that sort of stuff, uh, the jazz track and then being in, that band, which is which is funky, 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 and uh, having the conversation, I think he said it was, it was with Garibaldi about the difference between you know when you're playing jazz, you know the subdivision is basically you fill in the eighth, and you know it's like no, I mean you you got to feel you've got to feel the sixteenth in in this kind of a groove, and um, I was like wow that that's really interesting. So uh, when you made that transition into playing with, with Tower Power and playing that kind of music, uh, and especially that lead book, which is not, um, it's not the lead book like playing lead with Maynard's band or with Buddy's band or something like that. There's kind of the different demands, but it's, it's still a blow, man. It, it's, and, and the ability to just be so accurate, uh, both in terms of time and pitch and you know, just the the making sure you had the right amount of grease on each note. Um, you know, what what was the hardest part of your transition for that? Um, well, again, thank you so much for the kind words. Um, I, I really loved playing with Adolfo, and and uh, we we definitely you know played played really well together. Um, you know, I think one of the best lessons I got was uh, in in making that transition was, uh, you know, David Garibaldi has absolutely huge, huge ears. And he hears everything that's going on the stage, almost like on a, on a psychic level. Um, and for the first couple of months that I was on the band, he would hear things where I wasn't quite gelling. And he would, he would very gently, you know, sound check the next day, pull me aside 
and say, okay, well, here's, here's, you know, play, play that lick on soul vaccination. And, and the, again, this is something that when I, when I've gone and done clinics with, with students, um, I'll, I'll talk about, this is something that I never would have learned until I joined Tower of Power was the difference between having playing music that was completely internalized and memorized and, you know, looking at music on a page. Something happens when you take the page away that to, to your ears that they open up and all of a sudden you're able to hear things on a different level that, that even if you have the music memorized, for some reason, especially I think as a horn player, because most of us grow up learning to play our instrument at the same time we're learning how to read music, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to a lot of rhythm section players who, you know, they, they might start learning how to play their instrument you know, by ear in the guitar first or in the garage first and then learn how to read music. Um, so our ears, like, I don't think they develop the same way. And so first of all, as a prerequisite, I, I had, you know, we're talking about music that I had already internalized and memorized. So David will pull me aside and soundtrack the next day and he would say, play this, this section on soul vaccination. We're just going to loop it. And he would have me stand right next to his drum set. And he would tell me, I want you to watch and see what it is that I'm doing on my drum set while you're playing. And it became very apparent to me that the horn section in a lot of musical situations in Tower of Power, that the horn section was really kind of an extension of David Garibaldi. That, that we, were, we were almost like a, a pad that, that he could hit and, and, you know, and, and create this wall of, of, of you know, harmony. Um, and so it was really important that that I could visualize and could see what he was doing and then reproduce that and play exactly with him as much as possible. And the, the only way that I was able to do that was by these, these, like I said, for the first couple of months, getting together with him. He would say, okay, here's what I heard last night. Play this section. We'll loop it. Watch what I'm doing on the drums. I would watch him and we would just loop it until, until I would get it right. And, and, and when that would happen, and it was like be really, really close, but when it would completely, totally lock in, it would be like one of those, you know, have you ever seen those magic eye books yeah. where it's like, it's like a bunch of just, you know, weird squiggly lock. And then you look at it long enough and, and then all of a sudden the 3D image, it would be like that. All of a sudden the 3D image pops in and, and it's like, oh, wow. Okay. You know, I feel it. I hear it, you know? And, uh, and, and that was, that was, I think the best the best experience I could have had to get me out of like what you said, big band mode into playing in a, in, in the tower of power band. And I've never experienced it. I played in some great, great bands since that covered tower of power, but you know, there, there isn't anything that, and I think a lot of it is just because, you know, the, the charts are in front of you, yeah. you know, and even if they're hundred percent accurate and hundred percent, right, it's not going to be the same. The horn players aren't going to react to it the same unless they, they don't have the music. They have the music completely internalized and they're really, really listening almost on a, on a psychic level, not to get a, Ooh, you know, but they're, they're really kind of listening on that next level kind of listening. And, and then they can fit their part into where it needs to fit in, in precision, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it, it definitely is interesting because I played in, in plenty of bands. Actually, I'm rehearsing right now uh, for a, a gig. I, I, believe it or not, I have a gig coming up. <laughs> I'm sorry. You have a what? <laughs> yeah, it, it's this thing. It's it's an ancient tradition where musicians would get together and they would go out and they would play for exposure bucks. Um, 
And but, people would like actually listen. Um, yeah, sometimes they would listen. It's wow. really, it's really odd though because uh, we you know we still dealing with COVID restrictions, and you know bars are, are creating some sort of pivots. Um, so there's no dancing, which is you know kind of interesting when you're playing with a, with a you know a dance band. Um, <laughs> But, you know, but I'm, I'm not bitching because, you know, hey, it, it's, it's a chance to, to get out on the stage again. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, you know creating these pivots. But, you know, uh, one of the tunes that they threw in was a, was a T.O.P. tune. And I'm, you know, kind of you've know, been rehearsing it and uh, listening to myself. And uh, so as I'm, as I'm doing that, I'm, I'm keeping in mind the words that, that Adolfo spoke to me. And you know, what you were saying right now is like trying not just reading the chart, but trying to feel where where things come together and it's not like it's not merely trying to synchronize things and i think sometimes that's what what happens it's like okay well you know i want to play this pattern and it's just got to be synced up with the beat but it's coordinating what you're doing which is a different it's a different feeling between kind of making sure things are happening at the same time as opposed to coordinating the actions and making sure that they're they're uh they're symbiotic and not just occurring at roughly the same moment um and I think that as I as I go back and I listen, uh, because I was listening to uh, it was a uh, uh, so much oil in the ground, uh, and I'm listening to the original recording, and then I'm listening to like the recording uh, from the uh, uh, 40th anniversary uh, sessions, and mm-hmm. kind of listening and listening to some of the, the the some of the things that are different, but also you know I'm trying to listen to the phrasing, trying to listen to some articulations and stuff like that. And it's like even though there's there's these subtle variations, it's just that the way things just fit together so seamlessly. And, and what you said made complete sense. It's like being a, a pad for the drummer. You know, it, it's not like the horn section is over here and the drummer's over here. It's like this is all one organic uh, thing that, that's, that's occurring. And that is magic. And uh, it's it's so funny because I think it takes it takes a level of releasing your ego to be able to do that because you 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 can't be like well i'm the lead trumpet player man you know i'm you guys are all gonna follow me uh you know you've got to be able to to look at the greater good and how what you do uh affects that so um man no you're absolutely right and i think if i you know not keeping score on myself (laughs) (laughs) I think if 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 I could go back and talk to you know thirty year old Mike Iron Mike Bogart, I wish I could tell him that um, you know I I think I I did still I let too much of my my own ego come into play you know I I I, uh, I hung over too much I didn't play certain notes quite short enough you know there was still too much of me uh, in it um, you know, obviously I was doing okay. I was able to stay on the band for nine years and I, I didn't get fired, but, you know, I listened back to recordings, you know, um, especially live, live recordings. And I, and I just kind of like, oof, you know, a little bit too much mic in that, in that, you know, um, in that. And um, because it is like what you said, it, it is power. Power is very much like an organic single cell amoeba organism kind of thing, you know, and, and, and you kind of have to get absorbed into it, you know, and um, 
and 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 then and then you know everybody kind of works in sync and you, you do definitely have to check your ego at the door and, and everybody has their part to play and no one part is any more important or any less important than another part um it's all part of the same thing and um and yeah that's something very unique that you don't really find uh in in well, any bar bands, you know, yeah. <laughs> that I've ever played with, or wedding bands, you know. Yeah, yeah. You have to tower of power. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and and there's there's something to be said about the longevity. Um, yeah. I, I, I. Well, I was just about to say. I'm sorry. I didn't, don't mean to interrupt. Because, but I wanted to yeah. get this pointed before I before I forget yeah. it. I think a big, huge, possibly the most important part of that equation is the fact that we had the time I was on the band, we had David Garibaldi, Doc Kupka. Um, Emilio Castillo and Francis Rocco Prestia, you know, which was the core of the band from the beginning. Right. You know, um, Rocco, rest in peace, man. You know, um, you know, that, that really, I think having the core of the band um, for that, for, for, for that amount of time and the energy, you know, kind of emanating out to the rest of us, the, the newbies or whatever, um, was is a, is a really really important part of why that band sounds the way that it sounds yeah. without a doubt yeah well you know if, if you're if you're playing commercial music if you're playing cover bands and stuff like that and you're a trumpet player you're going to run across some of those charts and i just uh, you know i god bless you for for you know playing that stuff you know night in night out and you know not just oh my gosh i gotta i gotta play these you know, two T.O.P. charts in the third set. No, no, you're playing T.O.P. charts all night long. So that, uh, you know, that, that takes, that takes a lot of, uh, endurance, my friend, a lot of endurance, I'm sure. So, uh, when you go from, um, but you know, you, you, you did your run with them, uh, you know, obviously, uh, and then you put, you transitioned back into the Navy. Uh, so when, when you transition back into the Navy, um, I mean, what what was your, what was the calling? What what did you feel tugging at your heart and and, and your spirit to uh, to pull you back in that direction? Well, at the time that I made that that decision, um, I I had already been on Tower of Power for nine years, and uh, seven years of it um, <laughs> as an active alcoholic. And then uh, the last two years as, as a sober member of the band. And I, I kind of had this, this feeling, this sense that, you know, I never, I, I, I kept my, I kind of kept tabs on the Navy music program, you know, and, and I, I never burned any bridges. I was very careful. I kept in touch with, with Navy musicians. And, you know, I definitely kind of, you know, when, whenever we would go out and we would do clinics with the Tower of Power Horn section, and they would ask me about my education, I'd, I'd talk about how much I actually learned as, as a Navy musician. You know, it really gave me an opportunity to play a lot of different styles um, in a professional setting and to get a regular steady paycheck for it every two weeks. When I left, um, I, I, at the time, I certainly didn't have eyes to, to come back in anytime soon. But by the time I'd been on Tower of Power, um, for nine years, I'd been on the road for 12. Um, and, uh, it, it was, you know, it was really hard on my first family. Um, I, 
you know, ended up and a lot of it was due to my behavior, but, you know, I, uh, a 17 year marriage ended, um, with my, with my daughter's mom and, and, um, you know, I, I really, I just was looking for more stability. And, um, and I, like I said, I kind of kept, you know, kept my finger on the pulse of the Navy music program. And then I, I found out about an opening in one of the premier bands, um, military bands have in the United States, we have two tiers um, of, of bands. You have the, the fleet bands or the field bands, then you have premier organizations like um, the United States Navy Band in Washington, DC, the Naval Academy Band in Annapolis, Maryland, um, the, the president's own for the Marines, you know, right. and if it, those, those auditions aren't, uh, those, they, they only audition for a spot when a spot comes up. If somebody either retires or gets out or whatever, and they're, they're pretty rare. So the audition standards are a little bit higher from, from the, from the, the fleet band program that I was in before. Um, so anyhow, a, a spot opened up, uh, at the United States Naval Academy and, um, I, I had an opportunity to, uh, to come back in. And I thought, you know, if I, again, if I'm going to do it, now's the time for me to do it. You know, I, I only have to do another 10 years and I'll be able to retire with, with all my benefits. I'll have a, a wonderful medical plan. Um, I'll have incredible education benefits. Um, and it just made a lot of sense. And I'll have some kind of stability, you know, I'll have a little more stability than, than being on the road 300 and, you know, 320 or 200, sorry, at that, at the time I left Tower of Power, we were averaging about 250 days on the road a year. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I made the call and I decided I, I wanted to come back in the Navy. And um, uh, fortunately, I could pass a urinalysis test because <laughs> I was clean. Yeah, two years. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I came back in and, and I, did, um, I did a couple of years, uh, three years with the uh, United States Naval Academy Band amazing musicians. Um, and, and then, um, you know, then I, I found out about a program that the Navy, um, had where they would, they would send people to school to become drug and alcohol counselors. And, um, you know, like I, like I said, my spiritual program was becoming more a, a bigger part of my life and wanting to be of service and, and, you know, having the sense that I was, I was given this incredible gift uh, of sobriety. And I, I, I kind of feel like I, I have an obligation to, to try to pass it on. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, after my three years at the United States Naval Academy, I applied for the school. I got accepted and I graduated and started working as a substance abuse counselor um, for, the, uh, for, the, for the Navy. Wow. And I did that for a few years. Uh, well, no, sorry. I did that for just under two years, um, and I, I probably would have finished out my career, um, but then um, we had a, a family tragedy take place um, that was directly related to the work that I was doing, uh, and I, I, at that point, I didn't feel as confident in my ability to, to be a counselor, especially for, for this demographic. Uh, a, lot of our, a lot of our patients were um, folks coming back from combat that were dual diagnosed with combat PTSD as well as substance dependence, um, and I, they needed the best of the best, and I did not feel on top of my game after after going through this tragedy. I needed some time to heal for myself, so I, I took myself out of counseling, um, and was was really grateful that the Navy Music Program had a 
had a spot for me um, and, uh, and I wasn't going to finish out my career chipping paint on a ship somewhere. And uh, so I, I was able to get back into a Navy band and, and that's how I ended up, you know, full circle back at Great Lakes where I auditioned for the Navy back in 1988. Wow. And uh, I, I was at Great Lakes for a little over four years and, and hit the 20 year mark. As we say in the military, dropped my papers and uh, and retired. Yeah, and and then that led you to the Royal Academy in London, where uh, you are for the moment because we have another pivot coming up. Um, so uh, you know, it, it's so interesting. You know, like you said, you know, it's kind of that full circle starting at, at Great Lakes, going all the way around. Uh, you know, with your your uh, commercial playing back into the Navy, your substance abuse counseling, back to music, uh, coming into another degree, uh, Royal Academy. Um, and then now you're, you're transitioning, uh, back into counseling. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, yeah. So I, I, I retired from, from the Navy band at Great Lakes in August of 2019. And we've, before I retired, I, I was thinking, okay, I got all this money I could go back to school with, right? And I never finished my bachelor's. That was another thing that I always felt like I had left undone. Um, and I thought, why don't I go back to school? So uh, in my first tour with Maynard Ferguson's band, we played a two-week stint at Ronnie Scott's club here in London. And I absolutely fell in love with the city of London. And I, I, I promised myself that if I ever had an opportunity to come here for an extended period of time, I would take it. So I, I kind of put out a little blurb on Facebook and I was like, look, if somebody was thinking about studying jazz um, in London or, or rather in, in the UK, um, I think I, I meet it even more general. Um, where, where would where would be some good places to go and study jazz? Who has you know great jazz programs? And Within 48 hours, I, I got a private message from Nick Smart, who's the head of jazz programs here at the Royal Academy of Music, private messaged me and said, hey, Mike, um, you might not remember me, but I, you know, we met, um, you played on Maynard Ferguson's band at Ronnie Scott's, I was at those gigs and, and uh, um, you know, I remember when I followed your career on Tower of Power, um, how'd you be interested in coming to the Royal Academy of Music? And um, you know, because I think I put on there that I never finished my undergraduate, I never finished my bachelor's. She said, you know, we, we based on your professional experience, we would be able to waive the undergraduate requirements and bring you in as a master's student. And I was like, where do I sign up? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so that's that's kind of how that happened. And uh, uh, I, so I'm, I've been over here. I, I'm using my uh, my education benefits, my we call it the post 9-11 uh, GI bill um, that I earned from my, my service time. Um, it's paying for, uh, paying for my tuition and I have a living stipend. Um, but I'm already starting to look ahead, right, to, to graduation, which is, which is coming up in, in the end of June. And, you know, obviously COVID, right? It's, it's, uh, it's you know, it's had a really challenging impact on live music um, and, uh, you know, just trying to think ahead to, okay, what are, what are some other things I can do? You know, I mean, I, I, I have a pension from the Navy um, and, uh, you know, I, I have a disability rating from the, from the Veterans Administration. I have income coming in. I'm very blessed. I'm very lucky. I don't necessarily have to work, but I want to work. Right. What I mean, I want to be of service. 
And, and I love making music and being able to give that to people and, and being able to go out and perform. But that's not going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. I mean, it's starting to trickle in a little bit by little bit. But what can I do now? And so, um, you know, as, as a veteran, we have certain other benefits. One of the benefits that we have is we have uh, what's called veterans preferences for federal hiring positions. I put together a federal resume. This was like last month not even really necessarily thinking. I kind of did it more as an exercise because I, I kind of was thinking, okay, ahead to after I graduate and I have my degree, um, I could put together a federal resume and, and like swamp the federal job market with my resume. But I kind of wanted to get some practice at it. So I, 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 I put together a federal resume. I went ahead, I found a couple of jobs that looked interesting. I blasted the resume out. The very first job that, I, that caught my eye was um, a, a a job in, in counseling at a brand new residential treatment center for Native American and Alaska Native youths. Um, it, it immediately caught my eye. It was the first place that I, I dropped the resume at, not even thinking that I that I would get a call because I mean I haven't been in counseling since 2014, you know. Right. And I, I, you know, so anyhow, long story short, they called and uh, they set up a Skype interview, and I I I had a great I had a great Skype interview with the with the director of, of the, the new facility and um, they, they recommended me for for hire. Um, so I, you know, at that point, I was like, well, you know, when when, would, you know, would you be able to hold the position because they, they were like, you know, we kind of need we're looking to have patients start coming in in, in um, April and May. So we're kind of hoping to have everybody on board by the end of March. And I, I asked, I said, well, here's my deal. I'm doing this master's program in London. Would you hold the position open for me for a couple of months? So I graduate. They said, no, we couldn't do that. We need to have our positions filled. So at that point, I was prepared to turn the job down and, and, and uh, you know, and just kind of wait and see what would happen. But, you know, I had one more thing I could try. I, I, because we've been doing so much of this remote anyways, um, because of COVID, we haven't had any in-person classes or rehearsals um, since I guess it was November, December. Right. Everything's been been online. So I asked Nick Smart, the head of jazz programs, if if there was a possibility. If I told him what what had come up, and if I took the job, would have you know would I be able to finish my program remotely? Without any hesitation, he said, "Yeah, we can we can work around this. We can make this happen for you." Mm. So I decided to take the job. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and that's the thing, you know, as we kind of bring everything into, into focus again, that, you know, there are so many opportunities that exist and um, well, first of all, you're, you're never going to know where they're leading unless you take them. And uh, you know, when you, when you get your head out of your way sometimes, you know, and you just kind of go with your heart and follow, follow the, uh, the still small voice uh, that, that we all have, yeah. Um, you know, I, I can't remember where I read it, but somewhere that, that if you follow your, in, whatever you, you know, whether you call it the voice of, of the higher power or your intuition or whatever, whatever you want to call it, that it rarely, if ever leads you wrong when you really follow, follow those, those voices that, that you always end up being where you need to be. Uh, it's when we start trying to parse things out and rationalize and intellectualize that's what gets us into trouble most of the time so um yeah i, I think that you know it, yeah obviously then when, when we have the ability to look back on our lives we can we can see the patterns we can see the the sense that things make and so it just seems like you've uh 
you've had these opportunities that, that have come up and because they, they seem to fall in line and, and when they do, you, you follow your heart and, and it's put you in these, these wonderful positions where each opportunity has led you to a, a new one. And I think this, this newest one is going to be um, a great one for you because, uh, I mean, obviously I love music and, and all the things that music do uh, can do for, for people. Uh, but uh, there's something about that counseling and that making that level of dramatic impact, uh, tangible impact on, on the lives of those who, in, especially in this situation, who not only just we all need the help, but but this is an underserviced portion of our our community. And so, uh, I'd certainly applaud you for for taking that step because it's it's not an easy job, but it is certainly a rewarding job in in terms of uh, of our contribution to to the greater good. So, thanks for for being that guy. Well, thank you, Jose. I appreciate that very much. Oh, well. um, yeah, you know, it's it's. Uh, Outside of making music, um, you know, the period of time that I've, I've spent working in, in mental health has has been the most rewarding on a slightly different level than than making music, and um, uh, it's given me much more. It's given me much more than I feel I've I've given to it, and uh, you know, it's it's it's, and I you know I don't necessarily I don't feel like like my decisions and and the 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 pivot points that you talk about, I, it's not, it's not necessarily me making those decisions. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm being guided. Like you said, that still small voice. And, and, you know, it's funny that you use that phrase because that, that actually comes from, uh, that actually comes from, from one of the Old Testament Jewish prophets who was uh, Eliel Hanavi, uh, uh, Elijah, Elijah the prophet. And he talks about the voice of God, not always coming in a, in a huge thunderous voice, but, but it's that still small voice that's in the back of our head, you know, the, the, the voice of conscience that, 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 that that's usually how God speaks to it. At least that's how God speaks to me. Right. Right. Well, that, that's definitely the ones that work for me. All right. Well, we've got two segments that we need to roll through here before we can wrap up for today. And uh, they are for all of the first one is definitely for all of our trumpet player gearheads out there, which we all are closet gearheads. It's a segment called Gear Up. And this is where we're going to talk about your gear just for a few moments. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that you're playing the EMs. Is that correct? Yep. I've, you know, over the years, I've kind of vacillated between a, a stock Bobby Shoe 8310Z. Well, even before that, a 6310Z um, and, and uh, uh, the EM model. Um, as my plane has, I use, I use the EM model on and off between the, the 8310Z while I was on Tower of Power. And there were a lot of things about it that I loved for, for that gig. But there were also some things that I felt like I was just able to respond a little bit better using the 8310Z for the Tower of Power lead book. Um, I, I felt like, like I needed a little bit more uh, resistance and I felt like the 8310Z is, was a little bit more efficient than, than the 8340, than the Eric Neashira model. Um, since then, obviously those demands aren't on me. There's, there's a quality to the sound of the 8340. Um, you know, obviously a, a lot of it has to do with the diameter of the bell, the big bell that it has. Um, there's, but there's just a, a warmth and quality to the sound that, and, and a color palette that's available that I, I don't necessarily find uh, on the, the 8310Z, the, the, the Bobby Shoe model, sorry, Bobby, you know, but um, 
so, you know, for, for jazz playing for, for small group stuff, I'm, I'm finding that I'm, I'm really loving uh, going back to playing an 8340, um, the, the Miyashiro model. Uh, and, you know, it works, it works great with a smaller mouthpiece. Like I, I kind of mentioned already, spoiler okay. alert before, um, you know, a lot of the playing that I do is on a, on a Miyashiro number two, um, Yamaha. Um, when I got to, you know, really crank out the lead playing, I, I play on a Miyashiro number one. Um, and then, you know, sometimes I'll practice I, on, a, on a, you know, old, you know, my original Bach 3C that I, that I still have. Mm -hmm. um and i i do you know you know i do a fair amount of practicing and playing on the on the 3c as well um but most of the majority of the playing that i do is is going to be on the the mia show number two and everything mm -hmm. is stock i don't play anything that's that's like been tweaked or, or messed with or you know custom so is the is the uh the mia Shiro model is that fairly close to uh, the diameter on a, of a 3c no it's not at all yeah, it's much much narrower, much smaller. It's uh, probably if, closer. The diameter, if if I had as a frame of reference, I guess probably closer to something like a ten. Yeah, a okay. 10. Yeah, I think I remember seeing something about like something about ten, ten and a half, and then but Bobby's is is somewhere in that three ish range, if I'm not mistaken. You mean his jazz model? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the 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 Yamaha Jazz, uh, the Bobby Shoe Jazz model, which I also, you know, I have a couple of those that I that I, I like to play as well. Um, the diameter and the cup volume is it's it's pretty it's much closer to a Bach three C. Um, I think I feel like the backbore and the throat might be a little bit more efficient, but you know, I'm again I'm I'm not one hundred percent sure. Yeah, don't quote me. <laughs> I I I can't promise anything. So anyway, um, but in terms of, of gear, I mean, one of the things that I do like to, to do with, with this is, um, you know, not just find out what you're playing, but, um, you know, more of the, of the whys and uh, particularly in terms of, uh, you know, when you have a, a student who, or a player who's, who's looking to make a change in gear, uh, you know, a lot of times they're looking at, well, what are the pros playing? Yeah. I want to play exactly what, 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 uh, Bobby's playing. I want to play with Eric's playing. I want to play with Michael's playing. Um, but it's not so much the horn, but it's what the horn does. Uh, like you're saying, the color palette and stuff like that. So, uh, if you're going to uh, give some advice to someone who's looking to to gear up a little bit, um, what what recommendations would you give them uh, of processes and starting points? The first thing I would mention, if they're if they're playing on a beginner model or an intermediate model, or let's say they're playing on a beginner model and they're they're trying to justify the cost of a professional model versus an intermediate model, um, I I would say, go ahead and and invest up. You know, think think long term, think future, think you might be doing this for a while. You know, because you never know that you could get bit by the bug like me. So, you know, if you're trying to if you're trying to make a decision between an intermediate model and professional model. Say so go ahead, you know, spring, you know, have the extra money and go ahead and spring for the professional model. Then I would look at, all right, what are they already playing? And what kind of success do they already have with the equipment that they have? Um, and do they really need to make a change? Is it really necessary? You know, um, and if, 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 it's, if it's something that they're, they're, they're really, really excited about, even if they, you know, I mean, I, and I can speak from personal experience, I might sound really, really good on some equipment, but it might get a little bit stagnant after a while. And, and maybe, you know, something comes like, like Eric came out with his model trumpet. And I was like, super, super excited about trying Eric's trumpet, you know, and, and it kind of got me fired up again for, you know, uh, for, for, 
the trumpet thing. And so maybe, you know, this might be a, an opportunity, uh, you know, for, for a young musician to get fired up about the, about their instruments. So, um, so yeah, I would look at what they're playing, what, what kind of success are they already having on, on their equipment now? And without making too drastic of a change in how their body and physiology is going to have to readjust, what can we get that player into that's next level? You know, mm -hmm. does that make sense? Yeah, makes, um, makes sense. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to plug, plug Yamaha, but, uh, you know, I mean, they've been, they've been fantastic to me over the years. And I happen to think Bob Malone is, is, you know, one of the, one of the greatest minds as far as, you know, taking in the consideration and the input from artists and from other players and being able to draw on that input and figure out ways to make, you know, whatever changes need to be made with the, the, the piece of brass tubing itself to be able to make that happen, yeah. to be able to make that, that, that a reality. Um, and not necessarily, and again, let's, let's, you know, talk about ego, not, not taking, you know, taking his own ego out of it and, and, and not saying, okay, you know what, this is my horn. If you don't like it, you know, piss off. Yeah. Um, but, but what does the artist want? What do the, what does the trumpet player want? What kind of sounds and colors do they want available to them? And how do I make this piece of inert brass material from the earth be able to cre create that sound that the artist is hearing in their head? You know, and, and I, I, I happen to think Bob Malone is one of the best at doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, success speaks volume you know, and, uh, there are so many great players that are playing, playing those horns, uh, you know, various horns and, and, uh, everyone has positive things to say about Bob. So Bob, if you're listening, I want you on the show. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. That would be a great hang. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe we need to, we need to get the Yamaha group together. Um, so, uh, I'll, I'll, put that together uh so here's our final portion of the show and this is a rapid fire round which is brought to us by our good friends at robinson's remedies this is robinson's remedy rapid fire round you know kenny robinson uh we haven't met personally before um at least to my knowledge yeah. you know i always have to ask that because there were a lot of years there where yeah. <laughs> it wasn't quite in the right mind i met yeah. a lot of people that i don't yeah. necessarily remember yeah, to my exactly. knowledge we haven't met personally, yes. but I've, certainly I've, I know of his products yeah. and I've, I've been, uh, I've, I've had correspondence with him. Yep. So, uh, yeah, this is, this is brought by, uh, Kenny and, and Richard. And of course we're talking about Walter earlier. Walter's their, uh, their spokesperson. So, uh, uh, man, this is the stories about Walter. Anyway, <laughs> they're all true. <laughs> So anyway, this is a series of questions that are going to be all over the place, and I just want your uh, quickest answer to these. I mean, if you feel like taking longer, it's you know it's up to you, but uh, just try not to think about them too long. Uh, and uh, here we go. Uh, who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? Uh, Bill W., Bill Wilson, and Dr. Bob. All right. What is your favorite book? Um. Tanakh, which is an acronym for uh, the, the Hebrew Holy Scriptures. Okay. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Oh, gosh. <laughs> the worst movie I've ever seen. Um, man, that's a tough one. 
I don't know, because I, every time I go in and I, I watch a movie, I have such great expectation. I want it to be fantastic. I walk away from it going, yeah, you know, there was a lot of good stuff about that movie. Um, can I pass? <laughs> yeah, you can pass. You can call the lifeline okay. if you want. Um, well, this might, this, this, you may have already answered this question. If you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? A counselor, um, therapist. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite drink? Water. Uh, you could have a dinner party and invite any three living people, anyone in the world, any three people in the world. Who would you want to have at that dinner party? Barack Obama. Rabbi Chase Taub. <laughs> and a British comedian named Stuart Lee. Okay. Got to have a nice balance there. Yeah. All right. Um, and, and you're going to have three additional uh, chairs at that party, and you can invite any three people from history. Sigmund Freud, Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, Moses, Golda Meir. Okay. Lacquer plated or raw? Lacquer. What is your favorite quote? Don't keep scoring yourself. Don't keep score on your bandmates. All right. What's your greatest fear? Can I answer that with a quick story? Sure. It was a Hasidic Rebbe named uh, Zusha. And he had a lot of followers. And this was in the uh, uh, 19th century. And he was on his deathbed. And he started weeping. And all his followers were around him. And they asked him why he was weeping and why he you know, was, was scared of, of, of judgment. And he said to his followers, I don't want you to think that I'm scared because judgment is going to ask me, Reb Zusha, why weren't you more like uh, Abraham Avinu, uh, Abraham, our father? Or why weren't you more like uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, the lawgiver? My greatest fear is that I die and I get up and the heavenly tribunal asks me, Reb Zusha, why weren't you more like Reb Zusha? So I think one of my greatest fears is, is getting to the end of the road and, and being asked, why weren't you more like Michael Bogart? Yeah. Yeah, I love that one. I love that one. There's actually a, a guy who uh, I follow his, his business podcast a lot, and he talks about his greatest fear is, is uh, getting, to, uh, getting to heaven and being introduced to the man that he was destined to be and not recognizing that person. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's that, that's that same, that same kind of concept, you know? So, uh, yeah, that's cool. Um, all right. What aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? High notes. That was quick. <laughs> no second thoughts on that one. Uh, what aspect do you think is the most underrated? Low notes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, fundamentals. Yeah, just really just basic fundamentals and good trumpet sound. You know, uh, I don't think it gets enough attention. Um, I, I think that it, and unlike in the past, now this is something that I've kind of gone off on a couple of times in, in when I've done 
master classes, you know, I'll, I'll listen to a recording from the 1950s, right? I'll listen to a recording of Maynard Ferguson, and I'll listen to a recording of Bud Hurst playing the beginning of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. And the difference in sound quality between Maynard Ferguson playing in the middle register and Bud Hurst playing the beginning of Mahler's Fifth Symphony isn't that much, you know? Today, there's like this huge idea that they're, you know, I'm a lead trumpet player, so I have to sound like this, or I'm a jazz player and I have to sound like this, or I'm a classical player and I have to sound like, you know, it didn't used to, there just used to be either you had a good trumpet sound or you had a bad trumpet sound. If you had a bad trumpet sound, you didn't get hired. If you had a good trumpet sound, you got hired. So for me, the most underrated aspect that, that doesn't get enough focus is on how do you create a good trumpet sound, regardless of the genre, regardless of what you're playing. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Um, you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Don't take it so seriously. You're not, you're not, a, it's not rocket surgery. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, and while you're back there, you're going to give yourself one piece of advice about life. Don't drink. Okay. And final question for you. Uh, what do you want your legacy to be? That I was a mensch. If you don't know what a mensch is, look it up. Mm. Google it. Michael, this was absolutely fantastic. This is um uh, everything I had hoped this time would be and more. And um, I really look forward to getting to know you much better uh, over the coming years. Uh, uh, have certainly admired your work from afar, but the more I've gotten to know you as a person, um, you know, you're, you're a rare breed, my friend. So uh, thank you for, for all your contributions and, and the continu continued work that you're going to be doing uh, to make the world a little bit better place. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jose. I, I, I really appreciate it. And um, again, thank you so much for having such a great uh, platform to, you know, explore something other than, you know, what mouthpiece do you play and how do you play high notes? <laughs> yeah, I love Bobby's answer to that, you know, when he said, you know, when somebody asked me what, what, what mouthpiece I play, I say a trumpet mouthpiece. So... <laughs> That, that's a great answer. Uh, but anyway, man, I really, really appreciate it. And um, I know that your website is under construction at this point. Uh, I know you've got some, you, you know, even though you're going to be uh, doing the, the counseling thing uh, more full time, uh, that you still have lots of music to to create and to produce. And so uh, there'll be a link to there is a link to uh, your website uh, in the show notes. So just keep checking back with with Michael and uh keep tabs on what he's doing because the man has, has got a lot to say both uh, uh, through his horn and, and through his actions. So uh, please help support him in as many ways as you can. So uh, as always, thanks for joining the hang and peace and slide grease. We out. Hey, thank you so much for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating connection through our mutual love for the trumpet life. I hope that you learned a few things about today's guest and had some laughs along the way. Don't forget to give us a review. We love those five-star ratings. And please share this podcast with your friends. We want to see our hang grow for show. Have a suggestion for a future topic or a guest? 
hit me up at thetrumpetgurus at gmail.com. Our opening theme was written and performed by Lexi Signor, and all other music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. So in the words of W.C. Handy, life is like a trumpet. If you don't put anything into it, you don't get anything out. So go out there and let your trumpet sound, and I'll see you at the next hang.